Good morning. Been going through the book of James and kind of got stuck on the last phrase in chapter one. Because in that chapter, James is talking about what authentic faith looks like. And he tells us not to be just hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. And he wants to make sure that we understand that doing the word is not just doing religious stuff. And so he clarifies what that means at the end of chapter 1 when he says, if you have pure and undefiled religion, it looks like this. And the last phrase is, keeping yourself unstained by the world. Now, a lot of us get confused about what that means because we get a little confused about what the world is, and that's understandable. The Bible says, love not the world, and then it turns around and says, God so loved the world. So how do I love the world that God loves and not love the world at the same time? That's confusing. Sometimes the world refers to people who God loves. And sometimes the world refers to the system of beliefs that Satan, the God of this world, promotes. And John captures the essence of that belief system in 1 John 2.16 where he says, all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Everything that is in that system that Satan has can be summed up in three desires. I want to be happy, I want to be rich, and I want to be famous. We see, even when we resolve the confusion about the, what the world is, then we're faced with a challenge. And that challenge is, how do I go into all the world and not be conformed by the world? How do I do what Jesus told me to do in John chapter 17? Be in the world, but not of the world. How do, be, how do I be in the middle of this world of people but be different in my desires and in my values and in my character. And of course, Jesus told us how to do that in John chapter 17 in two statements. He said, Father, as you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them. And they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. So we are to relate to the world the way Jesus did, and we are to be different from the world the way Jesus was. How did Jesus relate to the world? He was a friend of sinners. He hung out with pimps and prostitutes. He went to lost people. He had little time for religious people except to tell them they were hypocrites. But he went directly to those who were lost and knew they were lost, and he related to them. We're to relate to the world of people the way Jesus did, and we're to be distinct like Jesus was. And we've talked about the fact that our default mode of separation is typically either isolation, we stay away from people, or it's legalism, we make a bunch of rules to insulate ourselves from others. Jesus did none of those. In fact, Jesus purposely broke the Pharisees' rules 
He was always being accused of not washing his hands ceremonially as he was supposed to do. He was always accused of healing on the Sabbath day. It's like he went out of his way to break the rules. They looked at him and said, he's a glutton. He's a drunkard. He was perfectly sinless. And yet he hung around with sinners so much that they accused him of those kind of things. But you see, Jesus was distinct, and it was a separation by truth. It was a separation by the word. It was a separation by distinction. So how are you to be distinct? How am I to be distinct? Well, I'm to be in the world of people but distinct from the philosophy, from the attitude, from the motives, from the character, from the desires. Rather than be selfish, that attitude that the world promotes, I'm to be selfless. Rather than to be greedy, which the world promotes as as a motivation for life, I'm to be giving. And rather than be proud, I'm to be humble. You see, what your lost family and friends and neighbors and co-workers need to see in you is what Galatians 5 calls the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of God in your life. And we're looking at those attributes to see how that should be reflected in our lives as we're in the world. Number one is love. Number two is joy. And number three is peace. And we began to look at it last week, and we're going to complete that this morning. Heard about a guy who was leaving church and ran into the pastor in the lobby. He said to the pastor, your message today reminded me of the peace and mercy of God. The pastor said, well, thank you. The man said, before you thank me, let me clarify. It was like the peace of God because it passed all understanding. And it was like the mercy of God because it seemed to endure forever. There are three aspects to peace. There's peace with God, there's peace within, and there's peace with others. And that is a package deal. You cannot separate one from the others. First, we're to have peace with God. We said last week that everyone is born into a war zone. The Bible says, as sinners, that we are hostile toward God. We are enemies of God. We are at war with God. And I shouldn't have to tell you, that's a war you cannot win. And the only reason people don't realize they're at war with God is because God is holding His fire. But He will not hold His fire forever. You say, well, Dan, how do I make peace with God? Well, can we go to God and have a peace talk and negotiate? No. We have nothing to negotiate with. Can we go to God and say, let's call a truce. I'll stay over here, you stay over there. No. We have no leverage. The only way peace can happen between you and God is if God initiates it. And he has. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 20 says, He made peace through the blood of his cross. Jesus was the peace offering. He paid for your war crimes. And the only thing you can do at this point 
is come to God and surrender. The only thing you can do at this point is wave the white flag and say, I'm surrendering to you. And when you surrender, you say, I'm going to take whatever you give me. I was uh, reading this week in 2 Samuel chapter 8 where David conquered the Moabites. And the last group of people there surrendered to David, and David said, I want you to lay down on the ground in three lines. And they did. And then he had his soldiers kill two of the lines. And the third line he made in the slaves of Israel. When you surrender, probably the best you're hoping for is that I get to be a slave in this man's kingdom. I come and surrender to God, and what happens? I get forgiveness. He gives me the gift of eternal life. And he gives me his love, his joy, and his peace. It starts with peace with God. Second aspect of peace that cannot be separated is peace within. Now, I'm, I've, I've heard this and I've read this. I cannot verify this because I did not count, but I'm told that 365 times in the Bible we hear the words, do not be afraid and fear not. That would be one for every day. Why do we need to be told every day, don't be afraid? Because we're afraid. And the exciting thing is that the Bible doesn't just give us 365 exhortations. Stop being afraid, stop being afraid, stop being afraid. Jesus tells us, my peace I give to you. So the reason we can stop being afraid is because he has placed his peace inside of me and I have his spirit inside of me developing that peace into fruit in my life. So I have Jesus' peace, I have Jesus' spirit, I have him producing fruit of peace in my life. There really is no excuse for me to not have inner peace. And as we said last week, the reason we don't have that peace is because oftentimes we are disturbing the peace. And there's three ways we disturb the peace. One is by looking in the wrong direction. Remember in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, don't worry. And then he says, just look at the birds. They don't sow, they don't reap, they don't have any barns, and yet they eat every day because your heavenly Father takes care of them. Look at the flowers of the field. They're here today and they're gone tomorrow. They don't take cloth and sew it to make themselves look pretty. God beautifies them and he says, Solomon in all his glory never looked as pretty as a flower out in the field. And then he says, oh, you have little faith. So what's he saying? Look at the birds. God takes care of them. You're more important than they are. Look at the flowers of the field, which are here today and gone tomorrow, just so temporary. And you're so much more valuable than they are. Trust God. And then he talks about the Gentiles, and he says the Gentiles eagerly seek these things. Everybody's anxious. Everybody's fearful. And what are they fearful about? They're fearful about tomorrow. And he says, the Gentiles eagerly seek to get peace 
by getting food and clothing and money to pay for that. That's their security blanket. And I think we fall into that. We go, we go to Sam's. We buy our groceries. We get those big bags of stuff. You know, you get a big bag of ramen noodles, you know. Bring it home. We stuff it in the pantry. And we go, oh, that feels peaceful. I, I got enough food to cover me for, well, if it's ramen noodles, for a long time. We tend to be that. We look at our bank account. We say, I got money in there. Oh, I'm, I'm at peace. See, Jesus says, don't get your peace from your pantry. Don't get your peace from your bank account. Where do you get your peace? Jesus says, seek first his kingdom, and all the ramen noodles will be added unto you. <laughs> seek first his kingdom, with the emphasis on his. Peace is found in a person. Peace is found in Jesus. Peace is found in the prince of peace. Peace is found in the king of the kingdom. And when his kingdom is described in Romans 15, 17, it says the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Some of us disturb the peace by looking in the wrong direction. Other times, we disturb the peace by longing for the wrong solution. The world says the solution comes by subtraction. If I can just get rid of these problems, I'll be at peace. If I can just get out from under this burden, I can be at peace. That's not the solution. You see, God has never promised to take away your problems. But he has promised to be with you in the middle of your problems. And his peace goes beyond circumstances. And that's why we're told to be peaceful no matter what, because we have his peace in us. So we can look in the wrong direction. We can long for the wrong solution. Thirdly, we can live with the wrong attitude. We can actually believe the lie that I can worry my problems away. And that's why Jesus asked the question, which of you by worrying can add 18 inches to his life? Nobody. You see, worrying doesn't add to your life. It robs you of life. And the solution is given by Paul. The antidote is given by Paul in Philippians 4, 6. This is the antidote to worry. And he tells us there, if you will turn your cares into prayers, God will turn your worries into peace. So peace within is found in Jesus, who fills you with his peace even in the midst of your problems. Horatio Spafford was a wealthy lawyer in Chicago. He was a friend of D.L. Moody's. His life was filled with tragedy. First tragedy happened when his only son was four years old. He contracted scarlet fever and died. Then later in his life, he lost most of his wealth when the great Chicago fire wiped out his real estate. 
on Lake Michigan. He scraped together what money he had, and he was going to go to England to help out with a, an evangelistic crusade that D.L. Moody was having. At the last minute, he had some business responsibilities. And so he put his wife and his four daughters on the ship to England, and he planned to come on the next ship a few days later. He got word back in the United States that the ship they were on had, had hit another ship, had collided with another ship, and had sunk. And so he was waiting for word of what happened, and he got a telegram from his wife telling him that she had survived alone and that all four daughters had drowned. So he got on a ship and he started toward England. And I don't know if we can even put ourselves in this man's shoes. But he had lost his only son. He had lost almost all his wealth. And he had lost his four daughters. Now that's a problem doesn't get solved by subtraction can't fix that problem. But as this man stood on the deck of that ship and stared out at the rolling waves, he wrote the words to a song that we sang last Sunday. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. That's peace within. Thirdly, we have peace with others. And when Paul listed peace as one of the nine qualities of the fruit of the Spirit, I think this is the aspect he had primarily in mind. And the reason I say that is because Paul contrasts the fruit of the Spirit with the deeds of the flesh. And if you will read the deeds of the flesh, here's what it says in verse 20. The deeds of the flesh are enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, Disputes, dissensions, factions. What's that about? Conflict in relationships. What Paul is saying is the flesh produces conflicts in relationships. And the spirit produces in your life as fruit, peace with other people. So peace is not just something inner that you say, I've got it inside, you just can't see it. It's inside, and when it shows up best is in the tragedies of life. That's when other people see it. And in your relationships with others because they're not full of conflict, they're full of resolution. They're full of peace. Now the importance of this aspect of peace is emphasized throughout the New Testament. In Matthew 5, 9, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, 
In Romans 12, 18, Paul said, be at peace with all men. In Romans 14, 19, he says, let us pursue the things which make for peace. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12 and verse 14, pursue peace with all men. And Peter says in 1 Peter 3.11, seek peace and pursue it. Run after peace in your relationships. Now the question is, how do I become a peacemaker? Let me give you this morning four steps to being a peacemaker. They're listed in your bulletin. First step is to be real. If you're going to make peace in relationships, you're going to have to deal honestly with the problems. And a lot of us don't do that. So let me give you several things that are not peacemaking. Several things that are dealing dishonestly with the problems. Number one is avoiding the problem. Avoiding the problem. If you're running from it, if you're ignoring it, If you're pretending it doesn't exist, that's not peacemaking. Sticking your head in the proverbial sand because you've got a problem is not peacemaking. A lot of couples do this. Let's just don't talk about it. Let's don't make waves. We see unresolved conflicts are like termites in your relationship. If you don't deal with the issues, eventually it will bring the house down. Running from a problem is not peacemaking. It is cowardice. Second way you may be unreal with the problem. First is avoiding the problem. Second is appeasing the other person. Peacemaking is not I always give in to you. Peacemaking is not you're always right. Peacemaking is not we'll always do it your way. It's not letting someone manipulate me or dominate me. Jesus was the Prince of Peace. And yet he never backed down from a legitimate issue. He confronted the Pharisees and called them hypocrites. He made a whip and drove the money changers out of the temple. See, peacemaking is not becoming a doormat to someone else. In fact, when there's a problem and you simply appease the other person, you are actually causing that to lead to a bigger problem, which is resentment. Someone has said, when you swallow your problems, your stomach keeps score. That's not a healthy relationship. That's a sick relationship. And so peace at any price is not legitimate peace. So you're not being real if you're avoiding the problem. You're not being real if you're appeasing the other person. Let me give you a third one. And this is accusations that are unsubstantiated. You say, well, I think she did this. And I say to you, well, how do you know? Well, I just feel it inside. Do you have evidence that she did it? No. I just feel it. 
See, the Bible is clear that you're to have two or three witnesses when you make an accusation against someone else. And if you are acting as judge, jury, and executioner, and you don't have solid evidence, then you are in contempt of court. You are in contempt of God's court because God never gave you that right. You know what happens oftentimes when we imagine a problem, but we don't know it for sure? We tend to go and slander that other person because we're trying to build a case against them. We want to tell as many people as we can and rally the troops to make a case that isn't there. I think that's what Jesus was talking about when he said at the end of Matthew chapter 6, he said, don't worry about tomorrow because today has enough enough trouble. Don't be manufacturing problems that you can't substantiate. And then let me give you a fourth way that you're not being real and not being a peacemaker if you do this, and that is accentuating the problem. You may say to me, he hurt my feelings. And I say, well, how did he hurt your feelings? And when it comes down to it, he hurt your feelings because you didn't get your way. What is that? That's a selfish attitude followed by a selfish feeling. So if you have a feeling based on selfishness, shouldn't that feeling get hurt? Shouldn't that feeling die? See, if someone told you the truth and you're hurt by it, that's not his problem. That's your problem. You are accentuating a problem that is really not a relational problem. It's a personal problem inside of you. Let me give you another example of this. Let's say I am a legalistic Separation by legalistic Christian. So I got my list of rules and do's and don'ts, and this is the way I stay separated from the world. I look at you, and you broke one of my rules. So I assume you sinned. You know, I, I was on the other, Facebook the other day, and I saw your vacation pictures. You were sitting at a table, and I saw the wine glass. I saw the martini glass. Rule number four. Thou shalt not even drink water out of a glass shaped like a wine glass. You're busted. You broke my rule. Now, when I'm a legalistic Christian like that, typically I'm not going to come to you and tell you you broke my rule. What am I going to do? I'm just going to do what the Pharisees did. I'm going to judge you, condemn you, be angry at you. I won't tell you. I'll just be sort of snobbish toward you. I'll just look down at you. I'll scowl at you, and I'll hope maybe you'll figure it out, and you'll come crawling on your knees and apologize to me.
What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that is I have nothing to apologize for because what you are condemning me for is something that my conscience is free with, with God. So rather than me apologize to you, what you need to do is repent of your pharisaical pride. I didn't hear any amens on that. See, if you're going to be a peacemaker, it starts with you being real. And some of us have problems that are not relational problems. They're my personal problems. And I need to get real before God about the problem I've got because it has nothing to do with another person. It has to do with me. So it starts by making sure you've got a real relational problem. Second, when the problem is real, be responsible. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, Jesus said something about your responsibility in peacemaking. He said if you're at the temple and you're presenting your offering there and you remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your offering at the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother, and then come back and present your offering. Now, don't miss Jesus' main point here. His main point is that peacemaking takes priority over worship. You see that? You're coming to worship... And God brings it to your mind that you've got a problem in a relationship. God doesn't say, go ahead and worship because that's my priority. He says, go fix that relationship because that takes priority. First is a priority word. First go and be reconciled to your brother. And then your heart is ready to worship. You see, God takes seriously making peace with other people. But I also want you to notice, when is your, your, your responsibility to go? Jesus says you're offering, or, you, or you're presenting your offering at the altar, and you remember that your brother has something against you. In other words, you've sinned against your brother. You've done something to hurt your brother. When that's the case, Jesus says, do what? Go to your brother. It's your fault. You offended him. You go. Now, We keep reading in Matthew. We come to Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15. And Jesus says, If your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Did you get that? Now, when is it your responsibility to go? When your brother sins against you. I hope you got that. Because when you put those two passages together, Jesus is saying, whether you sinned against your brother or your brother sinned against you, your responsibility is the same. You are to go. You are to take the initiative. You're not to wait around for your brother to make the first move. Whether you're the offended or the offendee, the ball is in your court. 
You say, but why should I go? He hurt me. You ready for the answer? Why should I go? He hurt me. Because Jesus said so. If you're going to be a peacemaker, you are always to take the initiative. Don't wait. Go. Why? Because the longer you wait, the bigger the problem gets. Peacemakers always take the initiative. In 1978, Anwar Sadat was given the Nobel Peace Prize. You know why? He was the first Arab leader to go to Israel in 2,000 years. He broke a 2,000-year barrier as an Arab leader and went to Israel to try to move toward peace. Maybe you've got a 2,000-year-old barrier in your life. Or maybe a two-year barrier, a two-month barrier, a two-week barrier, a two-day barrier with somebody else. Peacemakers always take the initiative. I want you to do something this morning before we move on. I just want you to make a mental note of somebody in your life right now that you need to have a peace conference with. Somebody in your life that either you have offended them or they have offended you. You know who they are. They popped right in your mind. And then when this service is over, I want you to take responsibility and go. If you're going to be a peacemaker, you have to be responsible. Then thirdly, be receptive. When you sit down to have a peace conference, the first thing you need to do is listen. Be receptive. You might learn something. See, part of the problem with problems is that I only see them from one side. And if I describe a problem to you, I inevitably will spin it so that I look like the innocent victim. I look like the hero. I look like I've done everything I can. Why do I do that? Because we're all selfish at at heart. And so if you're going to sit down with somebody and have a peace conference with them, you can't tell them everything. You've got to listen to them. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 4, Paul said, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That word look is the Greek word scopus, from which we get our word scope. It's the idea of a microscope. It's the idea of a telescope. It means we're to focus on the interests of the other person in that situation. And if you're going to be a peacemaker, you've got to change the focus from your wants and needs and feelings and fears and your trouble and your hurts and your doubts to the other person's wants and needs and feelings and fears and doubts and hurts. There's only one way to do that, and that's listening to the other person, being receptive to that other person. Don't try to get your point across. 
try to understand theirs. And remember, you're not sitting down for a peace conference to win an argument. You're sitting down to win a friend, a brother, a sister, a spouse. It's especially true in marriage relationships. That's why in 1 Peter 3, 7, Peter said, you husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way. You can't say women, they're from Mars. You're to live with them in an understanding way. How do you understand your wife? Listen to her. Saw a cartoon where the wife said to her husband, I know you believe you understand what you think I said, but I'm not sure you realize that what you heard is not what I meant. Andy Capswise said, what's the point of us being on speaking terms when you're not on listening terms? Listening says I want to understand, but it also says I care. And so we have to listen not just to the words, but to the feelings. To listen to how I've hurt you. To listen to how others have hurt you. If you care, you'll be aware. You'll be receptive. And then the fourth and final step is be reconcilable. Reconciliation is a big word that simply means to reestablish the relationship Whatever you learn from listening to the other person, now you have to deal with. And there's only two things to do. If it's something you did to them, you need to ask for forgiveness. And if it's something they did to you, you need to forgive. You need to do whatever it takes to bring about reconciliation. And when you do that, For another person, you are simply doing what God has already done for you. Because 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 19 says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. What was God doing when Jesus went to the cross? He was reestablishing his relationship with you and me. And then that passage continues with these amazing words. It says, He has committed to us the word of reconciliation as though God were entreating through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And now he's in us begging the world to be reconciled. I don't know about you, but that strikes me as a unique privilege. God reconciled us, and now he has put us in the reconciling business. We get to go out and beg people who have not restored their relationship with God, who are still at war with God. We get to beg them to be reconciled with God because the cross has already paid the price for that. But don't you think it's a little inconsistent if we're out telling someone to be reconciled with God 
and we're not reconciled with others. People in the world are looking for peace. Do they see it in you? Do they see it in your relationships? You know, some of us are trying to reach our lost family members and all we ever do with them is fight. Then we're surprised they don't understand what reconciliation means. Well, maybe they've never seen it in you. If you will show them in a human relationship what reconciliation looks like by forgiving or asking for forgiveness, maybe they'll get a glimpse of what you're talking about when you say God wants to be reconciled with you. Now, sometimes that doesn't work because it takes two to be reconciled. Maybe you've been real about the problem. Maybe you've been responsible to go to them. Maybe you've been receptive by listening. Maybe you've been reconcilable by forgiving or asking for forgiveness, and that person will not respond. That keeps stiff-arming you away. Well, God understands that. Because Paul said in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. It's possible to do all that you can do and still not be able to resolve a relationship because it takes two. God understands that because there are a whole lot of people in the world who haven't been reconciled to him and he has done everything he can. So I would challenge you this morning in those broken relationships, make sure that you have done everything you can. I'm going to close today by asking you three questions. Question number one. Have you got peace with God? Can you say in your heart of hearts that you have peace with God? And if you can't, I beg you today to be reconciled to God. I beg you to surrender to the one who gave his life for you. Second question, have you got peace within? Are you still full of worry and anxiety, or do you really have peace within? And if not, I urge you to follow Paul's prescription in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Turn your cares into prayers. And then the third question, and this is the kicker. Have you got peace with others? And if not, why not do what is most dear to the heart of God? Be reconciled. Because that's how in the world you're to be different. We're going to close by taking communion together. If you're here as a visitor, this is not our communion. You're welcome to take communion if you're a believer. This is the Lord's Supper As we prepare for the Lord's Supper, I just want to remind you, we're talking about peace, and Colossians chapter 1 says, He made peace through the blood of His cross. 
So we're going to take the bread and we're going to take the cup and we're going to remember the cross, a very violent place where God was accomplishing peace. And I would challenge you, whether you're an unbeliever or a believer today, to surrender to him. Just wave that white flag and say, Lord, I've been running the wrong direction. And today, I come and surrender to you to experience your peace in every aspect of my life. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we don't have to meet you halfway because we couldn't meet you halfway. We couldn't meet you a quarter of the way. We couldn't get started to meet you. Father, thank you for the fact that what we could not do, you have done. You sent your son down here to us. He died in our place. And because of his sacrifice, we can have forgiveness. We can be restored. We can become your children. We can have eternal life to live with you forever. And you can work in our lives to produce love, joy, peace. Peace with you, peace within no matter what problems we face, and peace with others by reconciling the way you have reconciled us. Father, I pray that those around us who don't know you would see the fruit of peace blooming and blossoming and ripe in our lives. And we will be careful to give you all the glory. As we take the bread and as we take the cup this morning, we thank you that it's all you and we give you all the glory in Jesus' name.